Good morning. Um, please flick with me to Matthew 16 or read from the screen. So Matthew 16, verse 13 to start with. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do you say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by the Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Now flick over to Matthew 21, from 1 to 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. The crowds went there went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Well, thanks, little sister, for the prayer, and thanks, little, little sister, for the Bible reading. Well, it's that time of the year again. Palm Sunday. How many services have you heard on this account of Jesus riding into Jerusalem? As a kid, my mum read through this Bible in a Year devotion book, and she read it every year for a number of years. So, whenever the story of Jesus on a donkey came up, we as kids knew that Easter eggs were on the shopping list. So most of us know this story quite well. But even if this is the first time that you're hearing about this event, have a quick think. What is the thing that stands out to you most about this picture? 
Perhaps you were drawn to the fanfare, the palm leaves, the cloaks all laid out on the ground before Jesus, and the masses of people. Is it the fact that Jesus is riding on a donkey, of all things? I mean, it is true. Even in those times, it was not the go-to mount for a man professing to be a king. Whatever it is that first came to mind, the point that I'm looking to make is this. We all have different perspectives, different things that stand out to us. And this was the same for all of the people in this picture. You see, just as we have different images and thoughts about this story, so too did the crowds, as did the disciples. But above all, there is the man centre of stage, Jesus himself. And so today, I want to try to draw on how these different groups were thinking and feeling about this at the time. And hopefully, their perspectives will bring to light some parts of our lives and ways in which we may be misunderstanding the central figure in this picture. So let's first take a look at the crowds. Now, it's important to note here that these crowds are not citizens of Jerusalem. Matthew 21 noted this difference in verse 10 and 11, where the people of Jerusalem say, and I'm paraphrasing here, who even is this guy? And the crowds splutter and say, who is this guy? This is a guy that's about to rock your world, is this guy. And I feel like a great example that we can use for those of you who are a bit more visual learners is in the Disney movie Aladdin with the song Prince Ali. I have a few of the words here which I wanted to recite and just think about how it's describing the prince here in this scene. He's got 75 golden camels, purple peacocks, he's got 53. He's got 95 white Persian monkeys, and to view them, he charges no fee. He's got 10,000 servants and flunkies, which is a fancy servant, with 60 elephants, llamas galore, with his bears and lions, a brass band and more, with his 40 fakirs, his cooks, his bakers, his birds that warble on key, make way for Prince Ali. Now, of course, this movie was aimed at children to entertain them. It's true. And I'm trying to stop myself from singing those words. But there's a really good reason that we're using this example. Because this is how the crowds saw Jesus. In Matthew 16, verse 14, we hear from Peter that these crowds are saying that Jesus is not the Messiah, but a prophet reborn. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah. These are all examples of significant prophets who declared the coming of someone else to redeem the nations. Now, if we turn to Matthew 21, we see that the circumstances have changed a bit. Jesus has now declared that he is the son of the God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is that redeemer himself. So what did the crowd say in response to this? Ah, so you're Melchizedek reborn. Gotcha. 
Melchizedek, for those who don't know, is a guy who's referenced in Genesis 14 as being the only man who was both a king and a high priest. Now we can see the big picture of how they're seeing Jesus. Jesus to the crowds is not the Son of God, sent to redeem them spiritually. He's a Davidic prince who has come to re-establish Israel and bestow wealth and fame and honour on all Jews. Finally, the nations will bow to Israel once and for all, and everyone will be happy. Let's all sing Kumbaya. So now you're thinking, well, how is this supposed to apply to me? Well, most of us are aware of the lie that is prosperity gospel. The idea that you're only a Christian if God is blessing you with an abundance of wealth. And I want to stay up the front. That is heresy. It's absolutely wrong. However, that doesn't mean that we here at Willow are immune to the desire for comfortability. Here's a few questions to ponder. Have you been angry recently because things at work or home haven't been going the way you wanted them to be going? Are you addicted to streaming services, sport, perhaps even work? There are such things as workaholics or anything else in this world that gives you pleasure. Or is that, in fact, what you're living for? Are you living for personal pleasure, financial stability, this idea that, oh, just a little bit more and I'll be okay? Or maybe you're living for the pursuit of happiness. I just want to be happy. Life's about being happy. See, Jesus didn't ride into Jerusalem because he wanted Israel to have a comfortable, happy life where nothing bad ever happens. And nor does he promise that or want that from us. He came to suffer. Jesus is not our genie in a lamp. He's the son of God on a mission. So what mission is he on then in this picture? We've addressed the crowds now and how they misunderstood him. So let's now see what the disciples thought that his mission was. From the outset, we can confirm already from Matthew 16, verse 16, that the disciples were actually one step ahead of the crowds. They understood that Jesus was the Messiah, a name which means the anointed one. He was the son of the living God. You're going to hear a lot more of that, by the way. Sent to redeem the world. Everything sounds pretty good so far. But what did that actually mean? And what was that going to look like at its end point? Well, the first six verses of Matthew 21 give us a great hint. In it, we see Jesus asking a couple of his disciples to fetch him a donkey and a colt, saying that the Lord needs them. And at once, Matthew makes the link to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which he kindly paraphrases here in verse 5. He says, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I want to make a note of this. Today, if someone came up to you and asked, what does it mean to be a Christian? You might have a variety of answers that come straight to your mind. But hopefully, 
One of the things that would spring to mind pretty quickly would be John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that we'll never perish but have eternal life. Exactly. Though we might not know it all word for word, and I'm guilty of that, I'm horrible at memorising verses, we do get the gist of it. We know the answers in our minds. And so it is with the disciples and the Old Testament. These guys were raised as kids on the prophecies and the accounts in the Old Testament. And Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 is no exception. That's why Matthew makes the point of noting it here in verse 5. Because he, like the other disciples, knew at this very moment it was time. God's deliverance was about to go down. Did they have the right idea of what that was going to look like? No, no, no. You can flick over in your Bibles if you want to John chapter 18, verse 8 to 10. I'm not going to actually read it, but in this account of uh, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and his arrest, we see Jesus handing himself over willingly, without a fight. Then, seemingly out of nowhere... Peter draws a sword and slices the guy's ear off. That's, why? He kind of, what, that was an overreaction? Well, because he, like the other disciples at the time, misunderstood how Jesus was going to save the world. They saw themselves and Jesus as avengers. Here was God in human form, sent from heaven to deliver justice for the persecuted, to crush his enemies. All those high and mighty Pharisees and teachers of the law, they'd be begging for mercy. All of those rich fools that Jesus talked to, well, we know the story of Robin Hood, rob the rich and feed the poor. And uh, maybe even those uh, naysayers who mocked the disciples when they dropped everything and followed Jesus, perhaps they were even family and friends of theirs who thought they were idiots for following this guy. Well, how stunned would they be when they saw those same disciples seated at the right hand of the Son of God on his throne in the holy city of Jerusalem, reigning over the world. You reap what you sow, or as Jeff put it last week, you made your bed, now you lie in it. At this point, it is necessary to cut the disciples a little bit of a slack. The fact is that they had not received the Holy Spirit yet, This is revealed in Acts chapter 2 in Pentecost. So God was actively preventing them from seeing the bigger picture at this point in time. And furthermore, the written Gospels of Matthew and John, and you can include any book that they wrote, uh, is actual proof that they did eventually understand who Jesus really was. But nevertheless, their judgmental perspective of Jesus ought to make us think a bit more about how that might reflect in our own thoughts and attitudes. For example, do you feel contempt or do you have enmity with a family member? Are you struggling to forgive a friend who has hurt you? Or are you really frustrated with a colleague that just grates your nerves? Do you internally revel in the knowledge that those who persecute your rivals, perhaps, are going to receive judgment. 
Those corrupt politicians deserve it, you might say. Those bullies ruined my life. Murderers, well, they're unforgivable. And pedophiles, they don't deserve to see the light of day. In fact, it would be a mercy to see them killed in prison by fellow inmates. Serves them right. Well, hopefully we can see the problem with this mindset. There's no grace. There's only pride. It's saying, I am better than them, and Jesus came to make that point. Jesus proved that I'm going to heaven and they're going to hell. But Jesus wasn't proud. Though his anger burned against sin, yes, that's many accounts in the Bible where we see that, he never saw someone as unworthy of his love. There is always hope for those who repent and believe in him. So who is this guy who is willing to stand in the place of former murderers and pedophiles? Well, this is the last point for today, and I've split it into two simple answers. Number one, he is gentle and lowly. And number two, he is the Messiah, the son of the living God. First point. A number of our small groups have had the opportunity to go through or are in the process of going through uh, Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly. This book tries to uncover the character of Jesus, who he was as a man on earth. The title comes from Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 30, where Jesus declares, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Ortland explains that the heart, when it refers to it in the Bible, is talking about the central being of who we are as people. So with that being said, who is Jesus? Well, he is gentle, with a natural drive to welcome with open arms, instead of condemn with much waggling of fingers. No, no, no. The disciples were wrong. Jesus is not justice-crazed and extremely judgmental, so long as we choose to follow him. But Jesus is also lowly. He is humble and accessible to all, not exclusive to a select few. The crowds were wrong. He is not just giving us wealth and prestige and comfort over others. He has made it possible for all of us to follow him. Hosea 11 verse 8 uses some beautiful words to describe this Jesus. In referring to him, he says, My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Furthermore, Hosea goes on to answer in verse 9 the second point of who Jesus is. When the Lord, that is Jesus, declares, I am God and not a man. Well, I would paraphrase here, not just a man. The Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. 
Jesus is God. We saw this already in Matthew 16, 16, when Peter acknowledges Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of the living God. But then Jesus speaks. And here's the interesting part. He reveals more of who he is. Continuing on from Matthew 16, from verse 17, he says, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock that is himself, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus is the key to salvation. God in human form, riding on a donkey. Where is he riding? Well, he's not just visiting Jerusalem for some fun. He's not coming to be crowned with an earthly crown. He is coming to be the cornerstone, the rock, in verse 18, on which he is building the kingdom of heaven. Where is this kingdom being grown? In the church, where Christ is the head. What's different about this kingdom? It's indestructible. Even Satan cannot overcome it. The fact is, Jesus knew when he was riding on that donkey that he was riding to his death. But he also knew that in his death, there was eternal life for all of those that he loved so dearly. That being those who love him. So Jesus is the Messiah, which we shall sing in a moment. He is the son of the living God. What does that mean for us ahead of Easter? Verse 19 gives us the mission. We have the keys to heaven already. But keys have a use. You're supposed to use them. We need to open our church and our hearts to professing Christians and to hopeless souls with no idea who this man on a donkey really is. We are, as the verse says, to bind the people in this world to this loving saviour, to bring them into the flock here at Willow. But we are also called to loose on earth, on earth our message, to go out and declare it to all who will listen. That includes our workplaces, shopping centres, wherever it is that we meet people this week. Not just those that happen to walk into this building on a Sunday. So looking ahead to Good Friday and Easter Sunday, I encourage you to ask your colleagues, your friends and family, what they think Easter means. Perhaps show them this picture and ask them what stands out to them. But above all, take the opportunity to share what Jesus means to you. There's no better opportunity than now. And invite them here on Friday so that they can find out for themselves who Jesus really is. The fact is, there's a lot of hopelessness out there in the world. 
And only Jesus is the cure. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for giving us your son, Jesus, the Messiah. We thank you, Jesus, for being gentle and lowly of heart, for caring about each and every one of us so much that you rode into Jerusalem to your death. We give thanks that through your example, your death and resurrection, we have salvation and hope. As we go into this week, we pray that you might grant us opportunities to share you, Jesus, with others. Give us boldness of faith and compassion for the hopeless. And Lord, please bless the preparation for the Good Friday service. As we meditate on what has encouraged and challenged us today, help us discern what change is necessary in our lives in order that we might become more Christ-like every day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.